You are listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast that features interviews with thriller, mystery, and suspense authors. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash M-T-T-A. And that's an M as in murder. Over 180,000 titles, including great thrillers to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. So stay tuned for the next episode of Meet the Thriller Author. Welcome to episode number 30 of the podcast. I'm very excited to have Jake Needham as my guest uh, for this uh, episode. Uh, Jake Needham is an international best-selling uh, author, and I've been a fan of his uh, for a while. Actually, I looked up my uh, Amazon orders. I purchased The Ambassador's Wife, which was Inspector Sam Tate's first book, uh, on April 28, 2012. So I was very excited when uh, Jake agreed to come on. I've been a fan of his books uh, for a while, and uh, he writes a very... Uh, uh, great thrillers and uh, James Gandolfini, uh, the late great James Gandolfini, was interested in making a movie out of his standalone, uh, The Big Mango, which is also a fantastic read that I recommend. And we'll talk about that during this interview and a lot more. So uh, please welcome Jake Needham. How are you doing, Jake? I'm fine, Alan. Thanks for asking me. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, for listeners who might not have uh, heard about you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your books? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big one. Okay. Um, <laughs> right off the bat. I, I'm kind of an accidental novelist. I, I was um, my, uh, my general background is that I graduated from Georgetown Law and practiced uh, law and uh, various kinds of corporate business uh, around the Pacific Rim for quite a long while, and uh, for my sins, ended up running a broken-down little uh, television production company for a while that uh, we owned, and uh, I got involved in that, and uh, that sort of segued into doing a bit of screenwriting, and I worked in film and television for 10, 15 years, and uh, uh, I, I guess I got kind of tired of it. I, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up with a sort of ambition to be a filmmaker, and I, I really approached it mostly as an administrator and a, and a guy who who got deals done and, and delivered the films. Uh, um, and and at some point, I, I I really wondered if I could write a novel because uh, writing screenplays isn't a, isn't a terribly satisfying life. It's uh, it's always creation by committee, which wasn't a lot of fun. And I had no clue how to write a novel, so I, I sat down about almost 20 years ago now and wrote a book that became The Big Mango, which was my my first novel, and uh, uh, and it uh, it did awfully well. And, uh, and then I thought, well, Christ, I guess I better start taking this seriously and spend a little more time on novels. But the irony was The Big Mango became immensely popular with people who made films. And um, and I was involved twice in, in projects uh, to do screenplays, uh, one with uh, James Gandolfini when he was on The Sopranos. Uh, uh, he got very excited about doing uh, The Big Mango and uh, got HBO to buy it for him. And we sat around on the um, uh, set of The Sopranos and worked on the screenplay for months uh, Got a lot of good cigars out of it, and, uh, and we we moved forward. But then, uh, as you know, uh, Jim passed away suddenly and unexpectedly, and then the Soprano when we were shooting a movie. I think it would have been perfect for The Big Mango. That's, uh, one of the, uh, that was a great book of yours also, by the way, and uh, I think that would have been a, 
I don't think we'd have done it pretty good justice. So. Well, I did, I, the character, I, I honestly uh, I never really thought about it much when I was writing the book. But after, after Jim suddenly surfaced and, and got involved in it, and uh, I, I really couldn't see the character any other way. Eddie Dare, who's mm-hmm. this sort of broken down lawyer from San Francisco, who uh, uh, discovered that he accidentally, from when he was in Vietnam, probably knew where a bunch of money was socked away when the CIA had been trying to get... Uh, uh, the reserves of the uh, Bank of Vietnam out of the country before Saigon fell. And and he was fingered by all sorts of people as being the guy who knew where it was, and he just didn't quite know what to do about it. And I, I started seeing Jim in that role, and my God, that was Jim. I, I, I'd never met him, of course, when I wrote the book, and uh, I, I just thought it was amazing. And, and so I, I saw why he got so interested in it. And it's a shame. I was really brokenhearted, not only because I lost a friend, but uh, when Jim passed away, I thought we lost what would have been an incredible project there. And and as I said, a hell of a lot of fun. But it didn't happen. That's life in the movie business. Yes, yeah, so, so for all my understanding, I hear everybody, when their books get optioned and everything, it's like uh, still kind of like good luck if it ever gets made. <laughs> kind of oh, yeah, it industry out there. Uh, <laughs> I, the, I, I have to say, honestly, man, has been a good little earner over the years because it's been under option virtually its entire life um, and uh, that cranks out a few grand a year and, and that's very nice and so forth but the movie business works in strange kinds of ways and the quality of the material uh, even the people who are involved is perhaps the least important element and, and whether something eventually gets made is more dumb luck than it is anything else and it's just you know, from a writer's point of view, uh, especially it, it's really just not a lot of fun. Alan. It's uh, because everything it deals by committee, and you have all kinds of people who can't write for shit, who feel like they need to jump in and, and tell you how to rewrite stuff, and uh, uh, and then when you actually get into production, uh, then the actors own you. Um, if they don't want to uh, to do something a certain way, then they tell you they're not going to do it that way. And uh, unless the director is the 800-pound gorilla and can just sort of smash them into their places, uh, it becomes this negotiation. I mean, I, I'll tell you one funny little story quickly. When we were shooting a, a film in um, in Thailand uh, back in the 90s, which turned out to be Ali McGraw's last movie. You remember Ali McGraw? Oh, yeah, Steve uh, McQueen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> all. Anyway, it's uh, Ali. we had Ali on the movie, and there was... There, she she was the villain, although you didn't know it until about two thirds of the way through the movie. And there was it, she was this nice woman from the embassy who was solving problems and helping out and so forth. And at some point, she's walking down a street in Bangkok with this American woman who was the uh, the star of the movie, and uh, and they pass a beggar with two little children, and the the woman, as as tourists tend to do, reach for money, and and Ali's character put a hand on her arm and said, oh, don't do that. The kids are rented. Well, I mean, the kids are rented. That's how the begging brigade business works in Bangkok, that uh, you borrow children, you rent them, and, and you share the take uh, with whoever you rent the kids from. But Allie was incensed at the line. She thought it was an insulting thing to say. She would never say anything like that. And you know, and I sat down and I explained, no, you understand, this is the first sort of indication that this nice old lady from the embassy is really a, a tough bitch. And and you, you know you got to say the won't say the line once so we had to write it out 
and and it's and that kind of thing. I mean, it's not the line. I didn't give a damn about the line, but it was finding yourself sort of in constant negotiation with everybody. I mean, not just actors and directors, but suddenly the lighting guy says you can't do that shot that way because the lighting's not right, and uh, it's just. Writing a novel was an enormous relief because, by God, it's mine. It starts with where I want to start and it ends where I want to end, and all the pages in between are mine. Uh, and and you pick it up and you read it, and if you don't like it, that's okay because fiction is really a matter of personal taste. But you don't call me up and say, why don't you change it? Now, you know, instead of a broken-down lawyer from San Francisco, how about two little girls who live in North Carolina? But you have those stupid conversations in the movie business all the time. And it just drove me absolutely mad because the answer to every one of those those kinds of, of, of changes was the same, which was, hey, that might be a really good story, but it's not the one I wrote. If if you want to write that story, why don't you do it? You know, as a typewriter and some paper, go ahead. But it, it's just I, I didn't enjoy it very much. And, and therefore, when I started writing novels, it it was an immense relief because it is what it is and 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 it's there and you look up ten years later and it's sitting on a shelf and you see the spine peeking out at you and you can't suddenly jump up and wave your arms and say oh no no I want to be different it is what it is and and I've I've published nine books now and the, the tenth one will be out early next year and and you look back over those nine ten books and uh, there's some things you love and some things you hate but. They're there. It's done. You, you finish a book and you move on to the next one. So I'm glad I'm writing novels now rather than writing movies. God willing, I'll never go back. And when you first uh, decided to write a no your first novel, um, why did you choose crime and thrillers? Is that a genre that you do it to read before you started writing? Yeah, I suppose in a way. I, I, honestly, Alan, the answer, I didn't think about it. I just didn't think about it. I, and uh, when I look back on, on uh, writing The Big Bang, of course, I had no clue what I was doing. And I, I'm convinced that one reason it has been so popular with film people is having no idea how to write a novel. What I ended up doing was writing a screenplay in prose. Uh, and so when film people read it, it, it feels like a movie. It, it feels to them like it drops out as a movie. And I, and I suspect that that was the case. But it... it I didn't know what it was when I, I, I started. I, that's the way I still write uh, to this day, is that I, I think you just sort of meander around. and I don't work from outlines or, or sit down and puzzle a plot through. You just find a good place to start, and, and then you come up with another scene, and you plug one into that, and, and off you go. I think with, with Mango, the sort of vague idea I had when I started was that a lot of people over the years have written uh, books set in Bangkok, which which I've always called the bar girl and bullshit books, and and they've become something of a nasty cliche. And I'm sometimes a little reluctant to admit that I've written a few novels set in Bangkok because people seem to have an immediate sense of what that's supposed to mean. So the idea of the Big Mango was that it was supposed to be a little bit of a send up of all of those kinds of classic bar girl novels a, a little bit of a, a giggle and and when it was published nobody got the joke they thought it was another one of those but a better one and so it sold like a hundred thousand copies in the first uh first couple of years and and to this day it still sells quite well and it, as i said it's been out 20 years 
but I it, I didn't really set out with anything in mind other than to try to have a little fun with a traditional Bangkok novel form. I, I think the best description I've ever heard of for a writer was the Bangkok Post described as Michael Connolly with steamed rice. I think it's so cool. <laughs> I dine out on that. I really do. You can't get a... You just can't get a better blurb than that, can you? It's, uh, I was really lucky when I first started publishing um, because I, 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 I ended up publishing mostly in, in Asia and the UK. My, my print books were never even sold in the U.S., and therefore nobody here had ever heard of me. The next best line I ever heard was in a, in a different review. Uh, the Bangkok Post described me as the best-known American writer no one in America had ever heard of. <laughs> uh, the point being that my book sold well through Asia, but the upside of that was newspapers still wrote book reviews then, sort of like the old days in America. So I would publish a new book, and I would be reviewed in the Singapore Straits Times, the Bangkok Post, South China Morning Post, Malaysian Star. So I've got all these great reviews um, and, and these wonderful review lines like that one which I inherited from my, my early books uh, that were, were published uh, fairly prominently in Asia. And then when I started uh, allowing my books to come out as e-books in the U.S., I think that really only worked for me because I already had a following and a fair number of people who knew me from the books that had been published and sold in, in Asia and, and, uh, and the U.K. primarily. Uh, but to this day, none of the, uh, of the print books have ever been uh, uh, published published in the U.S., and, uh, and I, I don't really know what to attribute that to. It just, you know, I sell a, a ton of books, but no U.S. publisher and distributor has ever had the slightest interest, and I've always sort of chalked that up to the fact that uh, there is a view that Americans don't like to read about Asia, and, and that's why, if you think about it, you're pretty hard-pressed to come up with contemporary thrillers or crime fiction or something which is set in Asian cities. You, if you think real hard, you may find a few, but not very many. Um, and I think there is a view uh, among American publishers that Americans aren't interested in that kind of material, which is fine with me. Uh, that leaves the field pretty much to me, and so I sell a ton of books. Yeah, I was going to say you do. You sell a lot of, 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 of at least of the e-books, and so there must be a, an audience. So, but uh, I'm glad that at least their e-books are available. But yeah, maybe also on the perspective, you know, I I actually enjoy. It. I've been to Bangkok, you know, to Thailand three times, and I like that the that country. But your your books, like you said, they're not like the cliche, you know, soy cowboy type, you know, books. They're like really. I mean, I've only been there three times, but it looks like it's really realistic. And like the reviews in the Bangkok Post and, and in Singapore, they're all always mention that. That's something that you really strive hard to write. Yeah, it is. Al, it really is. There. I I I try very hard not to uh, to fall into that sort of swamp of cliche, which is uh, uh, very much what uh, Asian set fiction is generally to a lot of people. Uh, I, I write two series, uh, as, as you know. Uh, and, and that's become a bit of a burden, but I, I did it originally because I wanted to come at things in two different ways. The, uh, the Inspector Samuel Tay series uh, is set primarily in Singapore, and uh, Sam Tay is a Singaporean CID detective who's uh, in his late 40s when the series starts and uh, works up through 50 in his early 50s. and. He's reached that point in life that a lot of us find in which you sort of look around and you say, shit, how did I get here? 
Um, and and Sam's not all that delighted to discover that uh, uh, he's still a cop at that point in his uh, life. And uh, and so the books are about uh, Tay, who's not really all that Singaporean because his father was an American, trying to decide uh, how he's going to navigate through the rest of his life and that uh, he's a very, very good detective, but he's quite different from the other people around him and they never let him forget it. So that's that's one kind of series. And then the other series of my Jack Shepard books, which are set really in most of the rest of Asia, uh, Shepard was an American lawyer who was offered a job teaching at uh, Chulalongkorn Korn University in Bangkok. Uh, and on a whim, he took it because he was just sick of practicing law, and he thought, well, what the hell, why not? And Shepard's an expert in, in money laundering and, and uh, financial crime and uh, as you might imagine, his expertise ends up following him, and he can't really quite get away from it. And two of the Shepherd books are um, are set in Bangkok and Phuket, uh, Laundry Man and Killing Plato. Um, and then there's a book set sort of in Dubai and uh, Hong Kong and uh, and Bangkok uh, called A World of Trouble, about a military takeover in Thailand, which Shepherd gets sort of sucked into. And then the fourth book called The King of Macau, uh, in which um, Shepard gets involved in a large-scale money laundering scheme in Macau. But all of these books are rooted in reality. I mean, each one of them has its its roots, even the Tay books, has its roots in something that really happened. But then you spin off from what really happened and turn it into something else, and, and that's what makes fiction. I, that's why I enjoy fiction, is that you can you can speculate in all kinds of outrageous ways, uh, uh, when I wrote uh, A World of Trouble, because it, it had some parallels to uh, uh, actual military coups that had occurred in Thailand, um, and and there is this sort of sense around that, uh, because I'm, I'm fairly well plugged into the region, that there's probably more truth in, in my books that I let on. I had to put a little forward in the book, which said, hey, friends, I make this shit up. This is fiction. It's that. That's this. It's not real, but nobody believes that. I had a friend who was the chief of station for CIA in uh, in Thailand for a long while, and and uh, he accosted me one day, quite perturbed because of something in in one of my books, and demanded to know how I had found out about it. And I kept telling him I didn't find out about it. I made it up, and and he just wouldn't believe me. And and finally, after we argued for a while over it, and he, he began to accept that I really didn't know about the operation, that he was concerned that I did, he finally kind of chuckled and he said, you know, that's one thing that, that happens when you write about Asia. You can't make anything up because whatever you do make up, eventually somebody's going to come up to you and either tell you that it did happen or it's going to happen. Um, and and I think that's I've, I've found that over and over with my fiction the things I thought I made up people would come up to me and say how did you find out about that and that's Asia that's why it's fun to write about and is that something that you're uh, like uh, reading your books and I know like in, especially Singapore well in Thailand as well they're they're, um, they're pretty strict about what sometimes what is said in, in the media do you ever get worried that you're going to piss somebody off over the, in, in power <laughs> Well, I mean, um, I wouldn't say I worried about it. it, it in uh, the Singaporean set books in particular, it uh, I, I think they're pretty mild. You know, Tay is a cop who uh, who's uh, not necessarily happy about being a cop, so he's sometimes critical mm-hmm. of the intelligence establishment there and all the rest of it. 
but you know, to go back to the Mike Conley thing, you know, Mike writes about crooked cops in L.A. and incompetent cops and stupid cops, and nobody thinks to say a word. But in Singapore, there's a great deal of sensitivity to that. You're supposed to love everything Singaporean and and only praise Singapore. And uh, so a contact of mine in one of the foreign embassies there and who operates in an intelligence capacity called me up after the second book and said, mm, if I were you, I wouldn't come back to Singapore for a while. That I've, I've heard some stories that there are going to be problems for you if you come back. Um, and I haven't been back since then. I, I, I trust his advice. I don't really feel terribly deprived. Being told you can't go back to Singapore is a little like being told you can't have another colonoscopy. Um, so I'm, I'm not exactly upset about that. But uh, I would have just laughed it off. I think it's kind of stupid, the idea that a country would actually harass a, a, a fiction writer, a, a novelist, because they they didn't think that he had been sufficiently filled with praise for the country it sounds kind of stupid, but Singapore has in fact done it. They jailed uh, a nearly 80-year-old uh, British writer uh, for the high crime of insulting the judiciary because uh, he wrote in a book that the Singaporean judiciary was politically influenced, which plainly it is. Um, and he was in Singapore delivering a lecture, and they arrested him. He went to prison for a year. Oh, wow. So in the light of something like that, you chuckle a little less hard. Yeah. But as as I said, it's, uh, I, I'm not I'm in any way concerned. It's just that I've avoided returning to Singapore since then, and uh, I have a lot of friends there and hear from a lot of people and so forth, so I don't really have to uh, go back to keep the Sam Tay books going. And it's never my favorite place anyway, so I hardly feel deprived. <laughs> yeah, you keep visiting in your imagination with, uh, with Sam Tay. <laughs> Well, I try to make the books, I, you know, I, as I said, they're rooted in real events. That's true. But it's also really important for me to to root them in real geography. I, I was terribly pleased uh, two, three years ago, something like that. There was a some fan on Facebook uh, who had gone to Singapore to find some of the locations. And he posted on Facebook a photograph of him standing in front of the house that he decided was the house in which Sam Tay lived. And he had it right. He actually found it. Because in order to make all this stuff work in my head, is I went around, I found Sam's house and where he has coffee, and you know, I just decided this is how it works. And he found the house. And I just thought that was cooler than hell, that uh, the description was good enough that by gumshoeing around uh, Singapore, he found the various places where Sam lived and worked. The uh, Jack Shepard uh, novels, is, is he personality in Jack Shepard at all? I, I've always thought, Alan, that it, it's funny when people ask writers, is, is that character not really sort of you? They always ask that question about the hero. They never ask that question about the villain. And and the answer has got to be that you can't write about people unless there is something of you to them, because they won't ring very real. But not not consciously. I mean, the idea wasn't sort of disguise myself as the the hero Jack Shepard because he's not that much of a hero, to be perfectly honest. Jack's uh, uh, what I do share with Jack is that at, at heart Shepard's a guy who just wants people to leave him the fuck alone. 
and let him get on with his life doing whatever he really wants to do. And and so in most of the Shepherd novels, uh, he's a bit of uh, of a reluctant hero that uh, he spends at least some amount of time trying not to get involved, and that drives some uh, some people nuts because they they are accustomed to school of fiction in which it's he killed my brother and I'm going to get revenge, you know that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, and that's just not really my thing. And I think I try to layer a certain amount of real life into these books. And and real life is that you and me and all the rest of us generally try to avoid adventures. Uh, adventures. We don't embrace them, that they embrace us, whether we want them to or not. And and that's kind of the position I tried to, to put Shepard into, that he he is embraced by adventures that he does not wish to have. But he has them anyway, and I think that makes for a, kind of an anti-hero, but I think it's a good one. He's a guy I'd like to read about. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. I see. The, the next one that's coming up is a is a new Jack Shepard, right? In 2017. Yeah, it's called Don't Get Caught, um, and it's going to be the fifth Shepard book. Uh, Shepard has decamped for Hong Kong because he stepped on a few toes in in Thailand and wasn't really very welcome there anymore. And the uh, the tagline for the book is Jack Shepard swore he would never Thailand. Period. He's changed his mind. Period. So I, I, I and the the origin of the book is for me is in the 25 years or so we've we've lived there. Place has really changed remarkably, and and I think there there's something in that. There's a book in that about how how time passes too fast and and we get too little for it. Um, and and Thailand has been on a uh, a crusade really to obliterate its past, and uh, and I think that's a bit of a shame. And and uh, Shepard uh, shares a certain amount of wistfulness, I suppose, uh, that that I bring to to looking at the past and the disappearance of things which had value. Um, and I'm, I'm I'm trying to get that in the book, that that sense of it, that that Asian cities have. Uh, have rushed pell-mell for what they see as progress. Um, and, and progress usually turns out to be another condominium or another shopping mall. And, and I'm not sure what's left. Um, one reason I love Macau and, and wanted to do The King of Macau is in spite of the casino culture in Macau, old Asia is still there. I mean, it's a Robert Mitchum movie. It's uh, If you ever saw that wonderful Robert Mitchum movie from the 40s called Macau, uh, it's still kind of like that in places, if, if you know where to look. But most other Asian cities have obliterated their past uh, ruthlessly. Singapore leads the, the parade in that respect uh, because they're slightly embarrassed by it, that it seems backward in third world. Um, and they want to be forward in third world, in first world and contemporary and uh and they've lost a lot, and and I'm going to try to layer that into don't get caught in a way that uh, maybe I can convey it a little better than I can just in a few sentences while we're talking. Yeah, I really enjoy your uh, your letters from H as well. I would recommend uh, listeners if they want to you know, know what's going on in that part of the world. Uh, pretty insightful in the newsletter that, that, that you write, and uh, especially now with the, the passing of the king in, the, in Thailand recently. Seems like a lot of changes might be coming, or maybe not. <laughs> well, I, I, 
I don't know. I mean, there's an old sort of observation a lot of people make about Thailand is that if you want to be known as someone who predicts the future, all you have to do is to say that tomorrow is going to be exactly like today and you'll be right almost every time. <laughs> it, it doesn't change from a cultural standpoint very much. But I do these little letters from Asia maybe once a month, once every six weeks. If, uh, uh, if anybody's even remotely interested, you can go around to my website, uh, which is just jakeneedham.com. Put your name on the list, and anytime you get bored with them, you can take your name off the list. And I, I try to write every now and then, and, and not always about political matters, but you know, sometimes uh, uh, I, I try to talk a little bit about uh, the real basis uh, for some of my books and and some of the things about the real people and places that are in there. And I put in a lot of pictures. People like pictures, and mm-hmm. I can shoot a few pictures around town and uh, and stick those in there. And, and people seem to get a kick out of them, so I I. I enjoy doing them. It's, sometimes they feel like a bit of a burden, but people enjoy them so much that I try to get one out every month or six weeks. And you've been living in uh, in that part of the world for uh, several decades now, right? Like 30 years? Or? Yeah, pretty close to it. I, it's uh, yeah. more like 25, something like that. It was kind of accidental. Mm-hmm. I, I ended up doing a bunch of stuff there and... Uh, uh, then when we ended up with a little film company, uh, I organized a few shoots there because uh, at the time it was an awful lot cheaper and we could uh, we could do things there on a, on a much lower budget. And uh, uh, probably, uh, geez, about 25 years ago, I, I met my wife, uh, who actually, although she was born in Thailand, she grew up in the UK, and she was back as uh, editor of a Thai edition of Tatler magazine, the UK magazine. Um, and uh, she interviewed me on the set from one of the films that we were were doing, and and we guess we got on okay because we got married not too long after that, and um, have been ever since. And our, our youngest son just graduated from college, so uh, uh, things have gone well for us. We have a place in the states and uh, and a place in Thailand, and we try to divide our time. Uh, more or less equally. It depends on, on the weather and whether there have been any more military coups. Uh, <laughs> but it gives us the opportunity to, to be in both places. And, you know, the damn trip back and forth just beats the bejesus out of me. It's Any way you look at it, it's 24, 26 hours. But we, we usually go a couple of times a year, make the transition a couple of times a year, spend the worst of the winter in the U.S. out there and the worst of the summer out there. So, we're able to balance the weather a little bit, and that's not a bad thing, is it? No, that's no, a smart, smart way to play it. <laughs> well, it's it's fun to I I have to honestly admit to to be able to be in two countries is expensive as hell because you have to duplicate everything. And but we've done it for a long time, and and for family and everything else, it's we really do feel like we live in both places. We're well rooted in both places, mm-hmm. um, and so we we keep the time roughly equal. Uh, um, but without having a, a sort of fixed and, and firm schedule. But I, you know, we'll be we're in the states now, and we'll be here the rest of uh, of this year because uh, I like to be here for the holidays. Um, you know, Christmas in, in the tropics is never quite right. Um, so I much prefer being uh, in the states uh, through autumn and, uh, and the holidays. Then we usually go back right at the beginning of January because. That's really the best weather of the year in, in Thailand is January, February. And then by March and April, it's starting to get just hot as hell. So 
so we tend to come back here then. There's an old joke that uh, Thailand has uh, three seasons, hot, extremely hot, and oh, shit. Um, but that's uh, that's pretty close. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's, a, that's the warmest uh, place I've ever been in. Even like at 2 in the morning, it's like like sweat dripping hot. Yeah, <laughs> it's, not just, it's not the heat, it's the bloody humidity. Yeah. Right? The air is so heavy, sometimes you feel like you could just rip off a piece of it with your hands. Uh, yeah, you you kind of get used to it, but uh, I can't imagine how people live there before air conditioning. I just really can't. Yeah, uh, yeah. I remember the, we had friends that lived there. It's like uh, if you wanted to go like for a run or anything, you had to do it by, like before nine a.m. <laughs> yeah, I mean you really do, and and it's uh, you know this is the rainy season, and I'm just uh, reading uh, an email a few minutes ago that apparently they had some really heavy rains uh, last night, and I just uh, you know, you suddenly get these monsoons, literally, these monsoons come in, and the next thing you know, you got three feet of water in the streets uh, because the rain simply falls so fast that no drainage system can possibly be adequate to take it away. And within two, three, four hours, things are dry enough, but the, the rain simply comes down so hard that the drainage system backs up and there's, there's no way to drain the city. So, you know, you get used to it. It's a life there is is different. We uh, we try not to go outside unless we absolutely have to. We have a lovely apartment on the uh, 46th floor, and we look out over the city, and I can look down on the city, and it looks a hell of a lot better from the 46th floor than it does from ground level. So what's next for you now? Are you continuing to write both uh, the Jack, in the Jack Shepard and uh, Inspector Tay world? Well, I'm not sure, to be honest, Alan. I'm going to finish uh, Don't Get Caught, of course. That'll be mm-hmm. uh, Shepard number five. And, I, and I'm not really sure. I, in some ways, I, I'm sorry I started the second series because keeping two series going at the same time really is a burden, and it sort of means you don't get to do anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and more than once it sort of occurred to me that it might be fun to to just put both series aside and, and go off in a different direction. My, the only standalone novel I have is is uh, The Big Mango, and all of the other books fit into one of the, the two series. And I, it's, I think the reality now, especially with e-books, is people just love series. They like to get involved yeah. in a series. And, and I, any time I, I sort of hint that maybe I'm not going to keep going on a series, I get all these angry emails from people saying, you can't do that. You got to keep it going, and 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 so I feel kind of guilty, and and all these really nice people out there who don't ask me for anything except more books, um, and I sort of feel like I ought to take a shot at uh, at, at supplying them. And so you know, each time I finish a, a book in a series, I think, well, maybe that's it. Maybe I just won't go any further. And um, but then by the time I finish this Shepherd, I probably will be missing Sam Tay and decide to go back and. <laughs> And do that. I've always had in mind that if I decide to close the Shepherd series, the title of the last book is going to be The Last Shepherd. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, maybe. <laughs> I'll let you know. I like that. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Jake, I wouldn't to take uh, uh, any more of your time, but I want to uh, really thank you for uh, for coming on the show. And we do have like um, uh, a lot of aspiring writers that listen to this show. I was uh, wondering if you have any advice that you could give uh, to any aspiring writers out there listening. Oh wow, Jesus! Yeah, you know what? Loaded question. Huh? I know people ask me that. I I never know what to say that that doesn't sound kind of stupid because <laughs> I I've always hewed to the view that that oh, writing's not brain surgery, man. It's it's if you have the knack for it, 
it's really relatively easy. And I think the reason most people don't do it very well is that it simply requires you to put your butt in a chair and do it. And and it's you know, people like to talk about writing and they like to uh, to to you know meander around and tell people that they're writing it. So, but that can be done. You got to you got to treat it like a job. It's a real job. You show up at the office at nine o'clock and and you work all day and you knock off at seven and go out and have a drink. Um, and and I think you don't wait for inspiration. It's it's something you just got to do. And and that that sounds really pretty boring. It doesn't sound like like decent advice. But I got to tell you, I think that's the only real advice. That writing isn't inspiration. It's hard work. And and you know you got to you got set out to to build a table. You got to cut some legs and a top and and put them together. And writing works the same way. You show up. You do your job. And then you knock off and go home. And it sounds dumb, but I swear to you, it's the only way you're going to get it done. Absolutely. That's great advice. It's the truth. <laughs> well, I think writing is craftsmanship. It's not inspiration. And I know there will be people who, who will say, ah, oh, it's not true. You know, you got to have talent. Yeah, you got to have a certain amount of talent, but not very much. I mean, to, to, to get a book over the line into something that's really good enough to engage people that they will want to read it and that they will enjoy it. Uh, it doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a genius. You, you don't have to be Mike Conley or Ernest Hemingway. You just have to be able to tell a, a decent narrative. But then the problem is you got to write 100,000 words. And, yeah. and that's craftsmanship. And you sit down and do it. And, and I, you know, the only thing I can really say about that is that nobody ever wrote 100,000 words. What you do is you write 1,000 words 100 times. And and, you, and that's that's discipline. It's discipline and craftsmanship. It, it's it's less talent and less inspiration than just discipline and craftsmanship. And if, if you've got that discipline and you can put your butt in a chair for three months and knock out a thousand words a day for ninety days, hell, you got a book. That's how it's done. Thank you very much, Alan. My pleasure. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And again, I appreciate you. Uh, you inviting me on, and if anybody uh, is listening and uh, and wants to let me know what they think of any of the books or has any questions, then you can just go to my uh, my website, jakeneedham.com, and uh, there's a little form on there where you can contact me, and I try to answer everybody who's nice enough to write. So if anybody, for any reason, has a question or a thought, uh, I encourage them to get in touch, and I'll try to respond as quickly as I can. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I'd like to ask you to please review and rate this uh, podcast over on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out. If you take a few seconds of your time to uh, do that, it would be much appreciated. You can also visit my website at thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for show notes on this episode, as well as information about the uh, podcast in general. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. You'll be getting uh, special offers from our guests as well as information uh, behind the scenes information on the podcast and uh, please do visit my author website at alanpeterson.com i appreciate your support and so until next episode i will talk to you then